You know those awesome moments when you've got this idea and it works in some ways and then you realize the part you didn't think through? It was a great idea to have not people not sitting in rows and sitting around tables and getting to discuss until the offering needs to be collected. <laughs> so for those of you who are serving and collecting the offering today, sign up again. It won't be this hard every time in the future. It's like, did you? I don't know. Did, where are we supposed to go now? So keep you on your toes, right? Well, it's good to be with you and to see you on this um, Mother's Day. Today we are finishing up a teaching series. Uh, it's a teaching series that we've entitled Hope. And it's not so much that it's about hope only as it's about a journey to hope that we've been talking about. It's not that it's hope and then the next week a little more hopeful and then the next week a little more hopeful again, but it's actually a journey that Paul describes in Romans chapter 5. It starts with a common place that all of us in this room, no matter who we are, no matter what our jobs are, our careers are, no matter how wonderful our life may seem to the outside, that you and I are people who hold in common where Paul says the journey towards hope begins, and that is with suffering. That we are not strangers to suffering, nor do we live in a world where suffering is a foreign concept. But Paul says in Romans 5 that not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask today that no matter who we are and where we're coming from, that we would encounter you today, and that your love and hope and faithfulness to us would penetrate each of our lives. Change us as we gather here today through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in week one, we started with this idea of suffering, that suffering is something that all of us experience. Suffering is something that sometimes you and I are actually the authors of suffering. We're the causes sometimes of our own suffering or the suffering of our relationships, or, uh, of our marriages, of our friendships. We are actually causes of our own suffering at times and other kinds of suffering we experience we're not the cause of, we're just kind of the victims or the recipients of living with broken people in a broken world. But suffering is something that all of us know, both personally and corporately. But Paul is writing about here and saying that while we know suffering, and he's not saying if you know it, but he's saying while we know suffering, that suffering will not be the end of any of our stories. That suffering produces something, it produces endurance. And that we don't just endure, but endurance produces something. It produces character. Character is how we're actually formed and shaped on the inside. The question of can people really change, the answer to that is yes. That God can use struggles and suffering and pain and difficulty to actually mold and reshape us on the inside and change our character. But that that's not the end of the story either, which we talked about last week. And as we finish today, that Character also produces something through the Spirit. It produces hope. Hope. Hope is a word that I use a lot. You probably use a lot. I use it in a number of different ways. There's a number of things I'm hoping for this morning. I hope 
as a native Atlantan, like many native Atlantans, that the Atlanta Hawks will continue to have the most successful basketball season they've ever had. The Atlanta Hawks never fill us Atlantans with much hope, but they are the number one seed right now in the Eastern Conference, in the NBA playoffs, and I am hopeful that they will actually move to the Eastern Conference Finals and to the NBA Finals and maybe even win our first championship. I don't expect that to happen, (laughs) but I am hoping for it. I hope that our new puppy, Mason, will grow out of his teething and biting and eating phase before destroying a majority of the items that exist in our house. I am very hopeful that that will happen. I don't necessarily anticipate that happening either. He seems intent on pretty much eating whatever he can at any given moment, but I have hope that this phase two in his life will come to an end. I have hope that the rains will indeed come and fill up our reservoirs to a higher level, to closer to what we need them to be this week. I hope for many things. You hope for many things. Normally what we mean when we say we're hoping for something is that we are hoping for a future outcome of external circumstances to work out. We're hoping for things to to go the right way and we know how they should work out and that means we're kind of sitting there and hoping with with crossed fingers and with prayers saying, Lord, I hope this happens. I really hope that this outcome, which would be so great, would really happen this time. That's how we often use hope. But that is in no way what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 5. That is a weaker kind of hope than what Paul is describing here in Romans 5 when he says that we are a people of hope. Rather, he is talking about a kind of hope where there is an assurance of whatever the future holds, not because we're dependent on circumstances working out right, but because we know the one who holds the future. We know the God who is active and alive and working in our world. And because we know him as a God who redeems, as a God who transforms, as a God who reshapes and remolds, we can look at whatever is hard and whatever our future has in store for us and say, this too will be well. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know what it's going to look like all the time. But we are here in hope. We talked about in week one how the sign for us as Christians of that kind of hope, that biblical hope, is a sign that we see all around us as a cross. We see it in our church. We see it on people's necks. We uh, see it on walls of homes or on desks. You know, that would have been an odd thing for people 2,000 years ago to imagine folks having crosses around their neck. That would have been like after the French Revolution, people wearing guillotines around their neck. Or in Rwanda 20 years ago, having a machete up in your house is a sign of hope. Cross wasn't a sign of hope 2,000 years ago. It was an instrument that everyone knew what it was about. It was a sign of torture and pain and oppression and death. However, we 2,000 years later cling to this symbol and see it in front of us because we understand that our God and hope are not about avoiding pain or difficulty or hardship but transforming and redeeming them. That Jesus himself on the cross experienced all the suffering and pain that this world can throw at at him and until it cost him his life and they buried him in a tomb. But we have that cross in front of us because it's an empty cross. And three days later, as we celebrated at Easter recently, he rose again from the dead 
to show that life and love are more powerful than any of the forces of darkness and any of the forces of suffering that exist in this world and that you and I have the promise of that resurrection life as well. That we are Christians, which literally means we are in Christ. And therefore, the promise that God gives us through Jesus is a promise that is real for each and every one of us as well. That suffering is not going to be the end of any of our stories. And it will not be the end story of this creation. Leslie Newbegin is a British theologian and missiologist who says that uh, this kind of hope is what he calls a proper confidence. Uh, It should fill us with a proper confidence, which is a wonderfully British way of saying that, right? It's a proper confidence that we should have as we look into the future, that suffering will not be the end of our story. Newbegin says that if you and I had that confidence, and it's not a cockiness, it's a quiet assurance about where we are headed as a people, even when we don't know the circumstances of how things work out, that it ought to change the way we live, that being a people of hope ought to change the ways you and I live in this world. He says that that proper confidence ought to make it so that we remember how valuable we are in the eyes of God, who is the creator of the universe but looks at each and every one of us and knows our stories and says, you are loved and your story will be redeemed. Suffering will not be the end of your journey. He says it should fill us with a confidence that we can live lives that are bigger and more powerful and more wonderful than any life outside of knowing the hope of Jesus. Because what he says is that if you don't have that confidence, that proper confidence in where the future is taking us and the one who holds that future in his hands, then we live in a state of anxiety and worry. Then we're always trying to prepare for any contingency plans and squirrel as much away as we can and and, and save as much as we can and, and keep as much for ourselves and those whom we love as we can. Because if things go bad, we got to erect walls around ourselves and protect ourselves at the first signs of danger. Newbegin says that the hope that Paul's writing about here liberates us from that. Because we have confidence, a proper confidence in the one who holds the future and therefore we can be extravagantly generous with what God has given us. We can be a part of the transformation and healing of people's lives in our our own relationships, in our city and in our world. We can be people who give in breathtakingly generous ways of our time and and our talents and our treasure because we have a proper confidence that God will continue to meet our needs as we walk into the future. Newbegin says this kind of hope, it changes how we live. But he said it's also hard to remember. It's hard to hold on to. It's easy to give in to cynicism or to see the news or to think about what's happening in our lives or the lives of those whom we love and just think the darkness is going to cave in and take over. He says, so we need to remember the stories of how God redeems suffering in our lives. We need to share stories with each other, as hopefully you've gotten a chance to do with each other this morning, of God taking suffering and breathing new life into it. And I want to share with you a story of where I go, one of the places I go, when I doubt when I feel those voices of cynicism or insecurity in my own life is to, does any of this really make a difference? 
It's a story of a time when I took a three-day trip in Japan. As many of you know, I lived in Japan for two years after college teaching English through a program called the JET program that was run by the Japanese government. And I lived and taught in a junior high school. I was the only Westerner in my town in this very rural prefecture, which is like a county in Japan. And um, uh, a group of us who were foreign teachers, most of us living in individual villages by ourselves, decided to get together and to take a long weekend to go and visit the city of Hiroshima. We took a trip to Hiroshima, and I like showing the pictures for our kids of uh, our two daughters, Miriam and Hannah, of uh, our time in Japan. Hiroshima was a place that we went, that I went when I first arrived there. It had only been there a few months, and it was cool for a lot of reasons. The first is I got to take the bullet train. Um, to Hiroshima. If you've not ever taken the bullet train, it's an amazing experience. You go hurtling through these rice fields at like a hundred and whatever miles an hour, and you arrive on the second that they tell you that you're going to arrive. It's an amazing thing to, to, to do that, and you should just, you know, do it in your spare time. Go ride the bullet train whenever you get a chance. It's a really cool thing. We also like showing these pictures because Hiroshima was where a group of us went, and it's some of the first times that I start appearing in photographs in our family album. See, I don't take pictures, ever. And, uh, but Beth does, and so she has photos of our time in Japan, and Hiroshima was the first time we went as a group, and there was this kind of wonderful young woman from Wales that was a part of our group that I started appearing in some of her photographs uh, while we were in Hiroshima, who's now my wife. And, um, and I knew as part of that trip, that I was excited to get to know her better. She didn't feel the same way, but I, uh, but I wore her down over time. And eventually she said she'd married me, which was, you know, awesome. And, um, and so I love looking at it for that. But also the city of Hiroshima, as you know, is the first city in the world to have experienced a nuclear bomb being dropped on an atomic bomb. As World War II was coming to an end, the United States dropped two nuclear weapons over two different cities in Japan. First, the city of Hiroshima. Second, three days later, the city of Nagasaki. And the World War II quickly came to an end in the dropping of those bombs. If you know history, you'll know that that was one of the most difficult decisions that our president, Harry Truman, had to wrestle with. As World War II was going on and Germany had surrendered and just immense devastation globally as this world had, war had gone on, America had been involved in what was called an island hopping campaign in the Pacific of moving closer and closer to the main islands of Japan, moving from island to island to island, but each island had incredibly bloody fighting, huge losses on both sides. And as the American forces got closer to the main islands of Japan, they started putting a plan together for how an invasion of the main islands of Japan would work. Because the Japanese had said publicly, and I believe they meant this in every way, that they were not going to surrender until the very end. And so as the American forces drew up plans for an invasion of the islands of Japan for this war to come to an end, they conservatively guessed that a million U.S. troops would lose their lives and untold millions of Japanese lives, mostly civilians, would be lost in the invasion of the islands of Japan. Huge, catastrophic loss. And while they were planning it, a group of scientists had perfected a weapon, a nuclear bomb that had been built and could now be used. President Truman had to make the decision of, do you invade the islands of Japan conventionally with these massive losses of life, or do we use this new weapon to try to shock the enemy into surrender? His own cabinet was divided about what was the right thing to do. 
His top two generals, it appears pretty clear, both Eisenhower in Europe and MacArthur in the Pacific, both believed it was morally indefensible to drop an atomic weapon over a city without any warning at all. They and some of the other members of Truman's cabinet believed that what the United States should do was to show a test, a test to the world of their capabilities, and then say to Japan, if you've seen what can happen, if you don't surrender, this weapon will be used on you. But Truman and others believed that that would tip their hand to the Japanese, that it wouldn't be an effective weapon anymore, and they'd have to go ahead with this conventional invasion of the island, which would be far more costly for, both lives, on, for lives on both sides. What do you do? Now, if students of history have debated this point back and forth, what was right, what was wrong, and we're not here to do that today, but what I am here to tell you is that when you are in a situation where possibly, maybe, arguably, the more humane, just decision is to drop an atomic weapon over a major metropolitan area, friends, I don't need much more proof that you and I live in a broken world, do you? Right or wrong? When that's the option on the table? I know it doesn't win you Miss America awards to say that. I know it's not advertised at Olympic ceremonies. But we are a broken people living in a broken world. And sometimes we see the evidence of that all around. The morning of August 6th, the Enola Gay bomber plane dropped this bomb over the city of Hiroshima. And at just after eight o'clock in the morning, it exploded as the city was going about its business. And in the blink of an eye, 70,000 people lost their lives. 70,000 people. Very few of them were soldiers. Most, the vast majority were civilians of all different ages. In the weeks that followed afterwards, as many as 80,000 people died of injuries and burns and the effects of radiation. About 150,000 casualties. And then three days later, the city of Nagasaki was bombed, and then the Japanese did surrender. So that's the city we wanted to go see. When you go to Hiroshima, it's like walking on sacred ground. You go to where the bomb was dropped, what was the center of the city, and it's now a peace park. It was just completely leveled by the explosion. It was a peace park that you walk through and there's a museum and there's shrines and there's monuments and, and you just go through it. It's an amazingly powerful experience. We went there the first day in Hiroshima. The second day, we as our group kind of went on a sightseeing tour just seeing the places around the city. And the third day, we were going back. We were going back on the bullet train to our home prefecture. The people in our group, most of them wanted to go shopping because, see, it was a big city. Hiroshima is a growing metropolis again now. And we lived in this rural place, and this was before, like, the internet, before you could do stuff like download music on iTunes. So you had to go buy these things called CDs and, like, carry them around with you. So there were, like, music stores in Hiroshima, you know, food, Western food. People in our group were like, I'm going to go buy CDs and some clothes and, you know, everything else. But I wanted to go back to the Peace Park by myself. And the reason is because all those arguments about should we have done this or what was the right thing or what was the moral thing are somewhat personal to me. Because my grandfather, who's also named Thomas Richard Daniel, was a graduate of the Citadel. And as a graduate of the Citadel, he was an officer in the United States Army when World War II began. In the time World War II began, he was a captain and he was married with two children, my uncle Raleigh and my aunt Margaret. 
He fought in the Pacific campaign. In fact, he was involved with the planning of what the invasion of the island of Japan would have looked like. He knew firsthand the incredible damage and loss of life that was going to happen on both sides. And he was involved enough with the planning to know that he was going to be one of the captains to lead some of the early invasions onto the island. You imagine that. You imagine being involved in a planning a campaign that you are almost certain will result in the end of your life. Now, after the war ended, and they didn't have to go through with that campaign, he came back and had two more children, one of whom is my dad. And you see where I'm going with this. If that bomb hadn't been dropped, my dad's probably not born. I'm probably not there. My daughters probably aren't here. That's a heavy thing. That's a heavy thing to sit with. And I kind of needed to go back to the park and just sit with that for a little while. I had a couple of hours to walk around and see and just kind of be by myself. And towards the end of my time there, all of a sudden, at this one monument, this older Japanese man made eye contact with me through the crowd and started doing this beeline through the crowd to come and talk to me. Now, normally when you live in Japan, and especially an older adult wanted to come and meet with you and talk to you, it usually meant one thing, that they had been taking English classes and they wanted to practice their English with a real English speaker. They wanted to hear about Christmas in America and conjugate verbs and everything else. And so it's very sweet and very nice. But it was this moment where I'm in this park kind of like feeling this you know, internal wrestling and, and kind of sadness and pain. And this guy's making this beeline for me. And I just remember going, no, I don't want to practice your English with you. I don't want to talk about America or conjugate your verbs or tell you how we, I just want to be left alone right now to not have to be the ambassador of English speaking world, right? He came up and he bowed to me and I bowed back, which is a sign of respect and humility. And then he did something very unexpected. He stuck out his hand for me to shake his hand. Now, that didn't happen. You bow. That's what you do. And he said, hello. It's very nice to meet you. He told me his name. Now, he wasn't there to practice his English. He knew English quite well. He was coming to talk to me, to meet me on my terms. He wasn't that English was his first language. He was Japanese, but he obviously studied it and practiced it for years. He was a really good English speaker. He said, where are you from? Now, you're in a peace park, and it's a wonderful place, but you are aware in those moments that you are surrounded by Japanese people in a city where your nation dropped an atomic bomb. And so everything in you wants to go, I'm Canadian, you know? <laughs> it's like the Canadians have never offended anybody, right? I'm from Switzerland, right? The Swiss, everyone loves the Swiss. They don't do anything to offend anybody. And so I'm, actually, I'm an American, and... He said, well, it's so nice to meet you. Do you come to the Peace Park often? And I said, no, I've never, I've never been here before. Do you? And he said, I do. I come a lot in my old age, in my retirement. And he told me a story. He told me about how he had been an only child, a young boy living in Hiroshima, and how one August morning he got up, as he always did, and his dad gave him a hug and said goodbye and went to work in downtown. His mother was outside in the garden, and she asked him to go down in their cellar to pick up some items for him. And while he was down in the cellar, this bright flash of light 
happened. And as he came up, he saw that his house was partially destroyed and his mother was lying injured in their yard. He never spoke to his dad again. The place where his dad worked, where he went gone that morning, was one of the places that was just destroyed in an instant. His mother lived for about a week before she died of burns and the effects of radiation. And this young child, this only child, was now an orphan. Rescue and aid agency found him, helped him bury his mother, and then learned that he had relatives living in a different part of Japan. They sent him away to live with these relatives, to be raised by them. He had never met them before, but he didn't have any other options. He says they were very kind to him, but he always knew he wanted to come back to Hiroshima. The Hiroshima was his home. So when he did, he came back for college, and he had lived and worked there his whole life. And he said, I love coming to the Peace Park to remember my family, to remember my parents. He said, you are too young to have remembered the Great War. I said, yes. He said, but did you have people you know who were involved? I said, yeah. And I shared with him the story that if that bomb hadn't been dropped that killed both of his parents, I probably wasn't going to be standing there talking to him. And he looked at me and said, well, I believe it's a good thing that you and I can sit here today and call each other friends. Why do I tell you that story? Because you know suffering. Because this world knows suffering. You know cancer. You know addiction. You know selfishness. You know gossip. You know insecurity and anxiety and worry. Much less that we live in a world that knows violence and pain and hatred and bigotry of all different kinds. You and I are no strangers at all to suffering. But if God can take the orphan of an attack from a nuclear explosion in a city and the grandchild of someone that who hadn't existed if that bomb and attack had not happened and bring them together and say that we can be friends, imagine what God can do with the suffering that you're experiencing today. Imagine what God can do with the suffering and pain and difficulty that exists in this world today. Imagine what that God will do. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the hope that he's describing. That's what it means to have a proper confidence in where we are headed as a people. Because suffering, no matter who you are or what the news broadcasts say to you, suffering will not be the end of your story. For suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope will never, ever disappoint us. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask today, that in our pain and in our struggles and in our difficulty and in our questions, that you would encounter us and breathe your hope, a proper confidence into us all, that we might face what tomorrow holds and know and trust in your faithfulness to walk each and every step of it with us. Fill us with your hope, we pray this morning and always, in Jesus' name, amen.